0: Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are in John's gospel in week three of a long and slow walk through the gospel. And I say long and slow, not in like a tedious way, but like in the way as we've been talking about that John, our author of this gospel Wants us to linger. He's the one of the four gospel writers who's kind of known for recording long dialogues, for letting pauses and long walks and discourses happen at a slower pace. I think he wants us to linger in each of these stories. And so we're going to do just that as we go through the Gospel of John. We're going to do that in a couple of ways. First of all, I encourage you once again to open your Pew Bible to page 862. We're starting in chapter 3, verse 1. Or open your app if you're an app person. I will say that I have a hard time using my app because I still get notifications of other things that come in. So you be your own judge of if you need an actual Bible so you can't get pinged by the World Wide Web while we are hanging out this morning. It's your choice, no judgment. Um, But it's John 3, 1 that we're starting in. The other thing we're doing to linger is to, or the one thing is to, to just be every Sunday in a story, a story that John has chosen to elevate as really important for us to know about Jesus. The second thing is we have a reading plan. It'll come out to you every week in the newsletter. If you're signed up, I will try to remember, we will try to remember to put a slide every week about the next week's reading portion of the gospel and we've printed out bookmarks so grab one if you're a paper a bible person to actually just keep in your bible and what's going to happen is every week if you stay with this plan you will have read through the story we're going to talk about on the following Sunday by the time you come and then number 2 you will go through the we together will go through the entire gospel of John over the course of the next couple of months so we decided that this was a good place to start out in a new year and we started if you missed it a couple weeks ago with some foundational about what is the gospel, who's John, stuff like that. What's his tone? What's his method? But the overall quick version that I will say is that there were four gospels that were written as the oral tradition about the stories, the words, the teaching, the miracles, the actions of Jesus during his earthly ministry. As time was passing, oral tradition was a customary way to be teaching stories, but time was passing. And some different individuals started to gather these stories and say, it's time to record these. And so John starts in this amazing way when he decides where's a good starting place. Our gospel writer, John says, I know in the beginning like Genesis 1 kind of beginning, to show the eternal presence and involvement of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. So John 1, 1, Jesus was the word of God, the one who reveals God as flesh, capital W word, like a name, the given to Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. Already in a couple of sentences in the very beginning, John, our author, is able to just take enormous cosmic truth about divinity and humanity and put them into this poetic start. And in the first chapter, we talked about this too. There's this whole group of names just within chapter one that John uses to all indicate the personhood of Jesus. What is going on in the personhood of Jesus? So much beyond personhood divinity as well. And so he uses different imagery. I'm, I'm an image kind of person. I love John's writing. It captures your whole imagination. If you could get swept into his language, it's really beautiful. And he says, the word became flesh. The revelation of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So he fills his gospel with a bunch of stories so that we also can encounter Jesus. Like the people who were doing or sharing their own um, oral tradition accounts, he's saying, I want you to experience this too. So I'm going to tell you these stories so that you also can encounter Jesus and therefore believe And have life in his name. He does us the favor of writing out his purpose statement towards the end of his gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. The ones I picked are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that life, if you've read through the entirety of his gospel and gotten to his purpose statement, you come to see that's not just about the eternity to come. Yes and amen, but John's longing that these encounters would form and influence our life here as well. It's really beautiful. So that's why we continue to hold his own purpose statement in front of us as we dive into each story, because it's the purpose why we're still in John's gospel here today, to be formed by the stories of Jesus, wherever we are in our belief journey. We'll see that later today, so I'll get back to that. But that's part of what I love about this story, about Jesus's encounter with this man named Nicodemus. We have for a gospel encounter. We have a pretty long discourse, a pretty long conversation recorded. And it gives us room to wonder at some different layers about what was going on, nuances in what we come to see is actually a really interesting relationship between Jesus and Nicodemus. So Jesus is our long-anticipated Messiah. And here's this religious leader asking questions because this is coming, but maybe like in a very unexpected way. There's a lot of humanity that I love when I really sit with Nicodemus for a while because here's what we do see. He is a religious leader who is willing to explore his questions so boldly. Nicodemus is awesome. I, I really like this story, but I'm gonna get to that. I'm going to do something, though, um, before we dive into Nicodemus and Jesus, that I believe is important as we go throughout all of John's gospel account. John uses some language that's important for us to understand what he means. And so I'm going to ask that we take a little, like, you know, if you've been around, you know, sometimes I go, like, here's this sermon, but, like, hold on, I have one over here for a minute. We're going to do an over here conversation for just a minute about John's use of the word, the Jews. The reason this is important and Pharisees. Okay. There's some terms that John uses, scripture uses. It's important for us to understand throughout all of our reading of, especially of this gospel, because it's work that admittedly Christians haven't always done carefully and well, and it has led to some really messy stuff. So we're going to like sidestep away from Nicodemus, but I really like him. So I promise we're getting back to get into some conversation around the Jews. That That's the term that we're going to talk about that um, John uses and Pharisees. Okay. So sidestep for a second. Stay with me. Um, According to the dictionary, when you say a Jew, a Jew is a member of the people and cultural communities whose traditional religion is Judaism and who trace their origins through the ancient Hebrew people of Israel to Abraham. What is this? Okay, these are the Old Testament people of God, the ones who through Abraham, God said, I will be your God and you will be your people and a nation culture was formed with a faith involved, a faith in God, Yahweh, their one God, right? So it's the historic people of God who are offspring of this family, a lineage, a historical lineage. People are born into this family and there are traditions and history as a people group that is associated with the Jews. Sometimes there are converts, non Jewish born people who become into the convert into this faith and this people group. But that is not like a thing that happens like it happens in other faiths, like Christianity, right? Like it, the conversion is, an, it, it's more of like a people group with a lineage and a history. Okay. You may know people who are Jewish by heredity, regardless of how much they practice their faith of judaism like a lot or a little or whatever but that would still like culturally be of a people group right and you can also be a christian jew you can be a person of jewish family descent who believes jesus is the messiah they're all over the place in the new testament there's oodles of jewish christians messianic jew messianic meaning like um people who believe jesus as messiah so okay so we have to like kind of understand a little bit of difference. I think most of you do. I'm just trying to like just specify because in John's gospel he uses a term which scholars in multiple of the commentaries I've used say please use John's the Jews in quotes because he is not meaning the entire group of the people I just described. Okay, so actually. Um, The word that John uses, what is translated for the Jews, is actually maybe better translated as the Judeans, meaning the Jewish people from a geographical region, which is Judea. Um, And in John's gospel, he's referring to those Jewish people at the time in that space who do not believe that Jesus is Messiah. So those are a bunch of qualifications that are all wrapped up in John's use of the term, the Jews. And I say this because sometimes if you don't know that and you put John's version of that category, subcategory, to mean all, then what has happened in the past is that people therefore, sometimes the language he's using is clearly about those who don't believe and therefore huge people groups have been associated with a subgroup that John meant. Did that just make sense? That was a lot of words to say. The translation isn't meant to be an entire race of people. He is using this to mean a specific subgroup. We know this because Jesus and his disciples were Judean Jews at this time. They were in and of themselves among the group, the Jews there and then. So John is meaning a subgroup. And we hear in his language the clarity around that. How do we know that? Because I told you in the beginning, one of his like light and dark, like belief and unbelief is one of his major themes, either or. And so the um, expectation within his use of that language is he's juxtaposing those Jews who have come to believe and those Jewish people who have not, not an overarching category for all people in that group. Why do I want to make sure we know this? Christians historically have actually used John's gospel as justification for some horrific viewpoints and actions towards an entire group of people, a.k.a. anti-Semitism and Holocaust and things like that. John has been misused for purposes that are very, very horrifying, which is, of course, silly because, once again, Jesus was a Judean Jew in the first century, and Christians are super-duper pro-Jesus, so we have to reconcile that. Now, I'm not saying this here today. You guys, I want to just put this disclaimer out there. I'm not saying that because I'm hearing that from anyone in this community. I actually feel like we overall have a pretty good understanding of this. And I'm not hearing those racist sentiments being spoken here but Gosh, do you hear them in the world sometimes, like a lot? It's in the news all over the place. So what do we want to do? We want to not just know and think that feels yucky. We want to have a biblical backing to understand and articulate why biblically that viewpoint cannot be justified from our Bible. Does that make sense? So this is an equipping sidestep moment. Okay, Um, what's some equipping that you should know? Number one hey everybody, the Bible is super duper clear that Jews are, were, are a wholly chosen set apart people designated by Yahweh God for the blessing of all nations. The Bible defines this people group in that way to show God's character to the world, to eventually bless all people through their story, which is Jesus's story, which brings us to number two, which we have been grafted into. So if you are like me, a Gentile, a non-Jewish Christian, I am a Gentile Christian. We talk about, yay, we've been adopted in. We've been grafted into this family of God. Read 1 John 3, 1 through 3, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. We're saying we are so blown away that we are so blessed to be grafted in and adopted. unknown of our own into this very family of God, we are adopted children into this plot line. This is amazing. And then we cannot turn around and diss our new family tree. It just doesn't work out biblically to say one thing and then action-wise do another when we are saying, oh my gosh, praise God, we've been adopted in. So that's our number two reason. So again, I'm not convincing you. I'm equipping us, I think more than anything. And then number three, More general even than this language of the Jews and John that has been misused is an overgeneral, no, not over, a broader generalization. I want all of us to be equipped with really sensitive radars up for any path that's going on us versus them language to have a major pump the brakes, pump the brakes on broad generalizations about people groups. It is a slippery slope, as we know, to people justifying, devaluing entire groups based on oversimplification rooted on one mark of their identity. Okay. We know this, but this is all equipping again, to give language to what we want to be careful of. Us versus them categories have led to gross generalizations. And when we look at right now, even in the news, I find this fascinating. So, um, did you guys see, like, the, the, the numbers came out today. I think we're at 25,000 people. Over 25,000 people now killed in the war uh, against Hamas and Israel. And um, 25,000. 16 plus thousand of those are women and children. Like, this is, this is a, an incredibly, we have to be on our knees in prayer about this region. Um, there's a lot of politics. The Israel in the political situation right now is not Equal to, related to, but not equal to the historical people of God from the Old Testament. We talked about that a few weeks ago too. Why am I bringing this up? I actually was really struck. This Israeli lawyer said it so beautifully in the news the other day, warning all people groups against gross over generalizations based on some mark of who they are. So this is an Israeli lawyer named uh, Michael Sfard, um, And I loved the way he said it. He said, words lead to deeds. Words that normalize or legitimize serious crimes against civilians based on their race or culture group create social, political, and moral basis for other people to do horrific acts. Words create deeds. So like we, this is why I want us to be equipped with a big warning on any big us versus them. I bring it back around. When we read John and he says something like, oh, the Jews did this. We have to have a little bit more meat behind that to know what John meant. I do not believe in any way that John meant for a huge people group to be overgeneralized and certainly not over against Christians' verses because the early church is made up of Judean Jews. They were our leaders. They were the forefathers and mothers of our faith who we look to for guidance. Okay. That was meant to be equipping. Nobody, okay, we're good. That was the little side step. What about Pharisees? So this is another one, and this one will be way faster. We hear about Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, the Sanhedrin, and sometimes in this story, right, John 3:1. there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That ruling council is the Sanhedrin. Really quick, because you're gonna hear some of these. The Sanhedrin is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, faithful groups of Jews. Think two different Christian denominations, right? We've got some different thoughts, but we're rooted from the same faith. They don't always get along. But together, they hold some political, judicial, and religious power in this region at that time. So people were looking. They they were the leadership of this faith group. And people were looking to them for answers about all this stuff. That not everybody had a printed Bible or scrolls in their home. Like You were looking to your leaders for answers to things. Christians sometimes have flattened this word be like, oh, you know, the Pharisees, they were like super legalistic and super fundamentalist and didn't understand anything. Well, that's a huge us on them again. We just didn't us and them to a group who are trying really hard, I believe, to be faithful to their scriptures and work things out. It is true. Some of them did not see what was happening, but we're going to be really careful not to overgeneralize whole people groups. So we have a reputation as some Christians to flatten this word, to literally be a synonym to legalism. And I don't think that that's fair. I love Nicodemus. I've spent more time with him actually this week than I have, like in this story, than any other time. So I, like, I extra love him right now. Sorry, but it's gonna be fun, I think. Um, but I love him, but he alone can't be our reason for not doing this. We can get back to him, he's a beautiful proof to what I am saying about not oversimplifying this whole group of Pharisees, but also you guys, we have to have a little grace. If you're thinking about it, you're like, this is people charged with leading a group of people to be faithful in the scriptures and things aren't looking the way they thought. I mean, it's not shocking that there were people who like, I'm not, I'm not so sure. So, I mean, I just, I just feel like we can use a little more graciousness towards a group um, and not just assume that they're being rigid or legalistic when things do not look like what they were expecting to know about. Now, I remember when I was in seminary, um, I heard about this woman. She is a Jewish Christ follower, a Jewish Christian, uh, Amy Jill Levine. Have you guys heard um, Blue Collar Comedy? Do you know you might be a redneck? If I'm not gonna say any of them, some people know. Okay, so there's like this whole bit and I'm not gonna say the jokes because I just could get in trouble, but like they're pretty funny, you can look it up. Um, Okay, so there's this whole bit and it's kind of known like, if this and this, you might be a redneck. So Amy Jill Levine says, you might be a Pharisee if, using that, intentionally using that same tone. And I had forgotten where this came from. Forgive me, I cannot quote her original source, but I refound it in Scott McKnight's John book that I showed you guys the other day. And she lists these things. See if you relate to any of these things if, um, about what like the Pharisees believe. You might be a Pharisee if you believe in a combination of fate and free will. A both-and situation. You might be a Pharisee if you believe in the resurrection of the dead and final judgment. I think, I think we teach that sometimes in church too. Okay, you reject elitism and favor voluntary groups over inherited positions. You might be a Pharisee. Wait, this isn't sounding like some flattened, legalistic, fundamental person who just didn't get what was happening around them, right? Like you need to, if you value your traditions and also realize they must be reinterpreted in light of new social structures. Amy Jill Levine is saying that actually the Pharisees were often seen in their context as progressive because they were trying to make the law, the Torah, accessible to real people. So That's the last one she said. There's actually more, but it didn't have space. If you might be a Pharisee, if you want to make it easier and more meaningful for people to engage in their traditions, and you're willing to discuss how to do that. Okay, long sidebar, I'm going back now to the real sermon. Real conversation on Nicodemus. Nicodemus is doing just that. He's being a Pharisee who's like, I have questions. How do we live this out? So let's talk about him now. He was a Jew, a Pharisee, on the Sanhedrin council, and... Seeking, very intentionally, after Jesus. We read that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God weren't with him. So we notice first that Nicodemus has indeed come to Jesus at night. This is some of the layers I'm talking about. What, like, was he a little embarrassed? Was he nervous? You know, was, it, was there a little bit of shyness there? We don't know. Um, was he afraid to be seen by others? Was he a little, needed the cover of darkness to feel a little more bold himself? They, oh, they, we don't get to know, but I like that John gives us space to wonder. And to let that be our own pondering in the story, right? But we do know this, night is symbolic of kind of a spiritual darkness. And John has just in chapter one, talked about Jesus as the light. He has come into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome that light. So already right here, we see there is night and Nicodemus is approaching the light. He is pointed towards this light, he has intentionally postured himself to go and see and ask. And he calls Jesus rabbi, which means teacher, which means that this Pharisee is ready to be in a posture to be taught something. It's a name of respect. And it's just saying, I'm postured to listen to the teaching you have for me. He has clearly either seen or heard of we do not know which, these signs. Remember for John, a sign is a miracle that points towards a bigger truth about God. And he says, I know that you've done these signs, so God must be with you. So teacher, I've got questions because God is with you. And I am trying to figure this out. He is postured in the darkness towards light and Jesus builds from this statement, Jesus starts exactly where Nicodemus is at. He's starting exactly there in his conversation. So Jesus starts his conversation in verse three with this concept of being born again. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Right here, If we know some stuff about the Pharisees' beliefs, which we do, and the Jewish beliefs, which we do, this is a stunning statement. Nicodemus fully believes that he will see the kingdom of God. He is a faithful Jew. Pharisees believed all Jews would enter the kingdom of God through the resurrection on the last day. So he would have been astounded to hear that something new or different is now the case because Jesus is now here. Now I'm saying the kingdom will come if you are born again. So according to Jesus, it's no longer just about being Jewish of the people, the family of God born of Abraham, right? It's no longer just that It's saying there's something new happening and you need to be born again into it. So Nicodemus understandably does not have a pre-existing category for this. He doesn't have a baptismal tub behind him every Sunday or in front of him. That's what that is every Sunday. We have a language, we have an image, we have a history of understanding if you've been around a church setting, a different category. Nicodemus has no category for this born again. He does for seeing the kingdom of God at the resurrection of the dead. He has that category, born again, I don't, I do not have this. So for him, he goes back and says, I can't go back to my mom's womb. Like it's kind of comical. He's like an old guy, right? Um, yeah, duh, but not really. Like he's trying to build a category for something he has no category for. In his mind, born again would be a linear from the day I was born until the day I die and somewhere in there I was born. He's trying to do a linear, I can't. But I can't go backwards. Like why? Well, you know, he—that's his category. And Jesus is saying, no, no, we're not talking about linear. We're talking about a vertical kind of axis, symbolically speaking, of course, not literally up, but you know. But like, we're not talking timeline. We are talking about a spiritual experience. And he starts talking about this baptism of water and of spirit. So in three five, very truly I tell you, Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So here's our first group of categories that Jesus starts talking about to explain the questions of Nicodemus. And so we understand with language in the church, if you've been around the church, and by the way, if you haven't, like this fast forward, this is language that we have around the idea of this baptism with water, when then the Spirit will indwell you. The linking of these two terms is not problematic in our understanding now of what a a Christian baptism is, right? So, but this has been written but Nicodemus doesn't have that category, right? So in Acts 2, when all these people are hearing about the good news of Jesus, and they're like, What are we supposed to do about this? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of the sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So early in the tradition of Christianity or Christ following, there is, becomes a link between the water and the Spirit, but Nicodemus doesn't have the same automatic link. So at the time of this conversation, um, this idea of baptism or washing, it, it, it wasn't the same as it is for us now. Now, was there a washing? Yes. In Judaism, there was a there was two things. Number one, there would be a full immersion in part of your process of converting into Judaism. That was a thing, a full immersion. But there was a lot of ceremonial cleansing. So what's John doing in the river if we don't have baptismals in every synagogue? Like what's going on? John is saying like, be ritually cleaned, repent. I'm baptizing with water. Someone will come after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is where we start to get the language that links the two. But Nicodemus doesn't quite have that full link yet, but he did know something of spiritual cleansing, From the book of Ezekiel, he knew that there was an Old Testament link. In Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28, where God links purification with water as an image for a purification with the Spirit, saying, we'll recreate the people of God, return. And he promises his people, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. I will put my Spirit within you. So rather than Jesus saying something completely cryptic, to nicodemus remembering he doesn't have our same language he's saying something that has a whisper to nicodemus and he's saying i'm taking that thing you know of further and so nicodemus does know that this is new but he's meeting this jewish leader where he's at you've got a whisper of the water meaning a cleansing with the spirit we've got more Cleansing is gonna mean an indwelling of the spirit. Like we're just, we're hinting and we're using the language that Nicodemus already had, expanding it in very challenging ways. So it's important that we remember Nicodemus's knowledge base as we read on, because if you guys read, if you you read coming into this morning, you may have like breezed over some of it because it's like, it's confusing. Or you may have read it like four times to see which topic are we talking about. Are we talking about like, uh, spirit and water? Are we talking about flesh and spirit? Wind and spirit? Like what? It, Jesus seems to be going all over the place. So I'm going to go kind of fast through um, chapter three, and we're going to see quickly these different images, one after the other, that Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus, meeting him in his knowledge, ba- his language base of where he is. So he talks about. Um, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So he's are seeing living in the flesh means judgments on the basis of your senses, your like your your body can do. And it's saying that there's a mystery that is coming beyond this human control or your senses. He then transitions to wind. You're not surprised by the mystery of wind. We shouldn't be surprised by this mystery of the spirit. It blows away out of your control and that's okay. And so, He's using this language kind of in close succession that can seem like a fire hose to us, but the language, again, is meeting Nicodemus exactly where he is. Part of the beauty of the Greek word, which this was written uh, originally in this ancient Greek, this pneuma word is the same for wind as it is for spirit. So there's a real link. And actually, Nicodemus would know not only that from this language, but from his own Hebrew scriptures where ruach is wind, breath and spirit, where the wind, the breath, the spirit of God hovered over the deep and then God breathed with breath, life into Adam, right? So like all of this language, we're supposed to be leaning into mystery of that now we're talking about an indwelling, a nearness as close as your breath. Challenging, but not foreign to somebody with Nicodemus's knowledge base. But he still is like, how can this be? This is still radical talk to him. Verse nine, how can this be? Of course he's still confused. Jesus now turns and starts talking of heavenly things versus earthly things. You're talking about earthly things. You need to be ready for some mystery, a gift that is coming. And he transitions again to this either or imagery when he's saying, the one who came down from heaven will be lifted up. Then he goes into this language about a story that you may not know, and that's okay. We don't have time. About Moses lifting up a snake, just like the, and that brought the healing of the people of God, right? That's the story that happened from the Old Testament, which surely Nicodemus knew so well. This lifting up led to healing. And so too, the one who came down needs to be lifted up. A fore-image, a forewarning, for image a four image i think i made that up of the cross right this one is going to be he came down from heaven he'll be lifted up to bring this healing all of this transitional like either or heaven and earth spirit and wind this language is just one after another but in nicodemus's shoes it's his language it is his language it's the well-known story of god's provision By lifting up of this staff, so too am I bringing in my lifting up a healing. So if you've read through this and you're like, we are all over the place in our imagery. We have to remember it's a topic shifting in a language that Nicodemus knew. And the details of the depth of each of those analogies or comparisons or whatever they are, it's beautiful, but it's not as important to me this morning as making sure we hear this. Jesus is meeting Nicodemus exactly where he's at with the language he knows in the way that he has come to seek the light. He's challenging him further from his starting point. Illustrations that spoke to and honored Nicodemus's faithful study of holy scriptures. It's an honoring way to challenge as he's sitting there, he's come to see Jesus because he's waiting for God's promises to come true. And then and then we transition to this space where all of a sudden our, our narrator has taken what now, remember, he's written this after the fact, right? Time has passed. He knows now about Peter saying about baptism with water and the spirit will come. And he knows about Pentecost. He knows about the ascension. He knows about all of this by the time he's reading it. He goes in to say, for God so loved the world, right? So God so loved the world that he gave us. This isn't Jesus speaking. Our narrator just spills good news. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And he just keeps going about life and light back to the darkness, not being able to overcome it. This beautiful summation of the good news of what God has done in Christ. Speaks to our conversation last week. Remember the wedding at Cana that spoke of such abundance, such overflow, such deluge of delight in the best being saved until now. It's a wine miracle. It's a wine miracle. It's abundant, extravagant. So too, this language here, the sending of the son is so that those who believe find life in his name. John just keeps pouring that out. So God's purpose here is the salvation, relationship, temple presence, to use our old language if you've been here for a little while. All of it wrapped up and Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, can you open your knowledge base to be a little bit reframed? Something radical comes out of this abundant love of God. Jesus meets him where he is in his seeking and then pushes him for more. That's abundance. That's so beautiful. He's saying there's more mystery. There's more abundance beyond what you, even in your faithfulness, knew to look for. I've come to bring that because God so loved the world that he would send down and lift up his son on a cross. There's so much that's going to kind of blow your mind soon. But for today, can you open up your mind in your categories? Now, spoiler alert, we don't find out in this conversation what Nicodemus' response is. We don't know how he left what was in his head or his heart. We actually never have any report of Nicodemus becoming a disciple per se of Jesus. And yet, and yet this nighttime exchange is not the last time that we run into our friend Nicodemus. He shows up two other times in the gospel of John. He shows up one time while the Jewish council is like, what are we going to do with this guy? He's, dr-. this is a paraphrase this is, if you want to find the real thing, look at uh, chapter 7, verse 50. He shows up again when all the councils, like, what are we going to do with this guy? He's like a total problem solver. What are we going to do? And Nicodemus is the voice that chimes in and says, we have to hear directly from him. In other words, like we can't do this illegal trial that you're about to do. Like, that's not right. He's the voice that says we have to hear from him. Our faith doesn't allow him to not testify about himself. Nicodemus is that voice contrary to the voices around him. There's a boldness there. Nicodemus shows up there. You know where else he shows up? He shows up with the goods needed for a royal burial after Jesus is taken down and Joseph of Arimathea boldly requests Jesus's body to give him a burial in his own family's untouched tomb and Nicodemus is right there with Joseph of Arimathea with the myrrh and the stuff that's needed how did Nicodemus leave this day I don't know but those two examples of where he showed up next tell me that he was really influenced as he came in that conversation in darkness and postured himself to the potential of the light And he was bold in this exchange. He wasn't afraid to ask clarifying questions, to just say, like, I still don't get it. This is super hard for me. And what does Jesus do? He keeps going. He keeps challenging and loving and meeting him where he's at. I don't think that we are only meant to be challenged by the content of this teaching. The content of the teaching is good. Sit with it. Sit with the analogies. We've got wind and spirit, water and spirit, heaven and earth, light and dark. We've got so much stuff. Like, sit in it. It's beautiful. But I don't think it's just the words that are meant to form us. I think we've got the encounter between two individuals and their posture. Their posture is what blows me away. I'm challenged when I see Nicodemus's boldness to pursue, his openness to ask— to ask again when it still doesn't make sense. He's, He's willing to do all that. And how is Jesus postured in response? Could we believe here today that Jesus actually wants to meet us whatever level of spiritual darkness or confusion we're in, be it dark, be it fog, be it we think we're clear, but oops, just talking to Jesus, I might not be as clear as I thought. What if You could actually believe that Jesus is sitting there ready to meet your audience and your questions with the same openness and willingness to meet you exactly where you're at, as he did with Nicodemus, where Nicodemus was at. Nicodemus is a studying kind of guy. Like, I am deep in the scriptures. I'm a prayerful guy. He's not going to his study to figure it all out first before just walking up to Jesus and being like, Rabbi, I got some questions. Nicodemus was bold to do that. And Jesus honored that. What if Jesus wants to welcome us asking the questions, even saying something as silly as like, go back in my mom's womb. Like that looks so silly to us, but like Nicodemus was willing to ask it. And Jesus explains it. He doesn't shame. What if this posturing of these two people in this encounter is our invitation to remember that Jesus wants us to be postured the same way and that his posture towards us would be as welcoming and as ready to meet us exactly where we are. What if you could speak your doubts and confusions as easily to Jesus as Nicodemus did? I think that's a great challenge to me. What if even when you did that, Jesus's posture and his eyes could look at you with so much love, the love of God that so, 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 so loved this world that Jesus came down so that by his lifting up, the healing could come to the nations. What if you were looked at with that overwhelming love when you go and ask a question, however silly it may be, however confused you might be. He isn't answering Nicodemus with riddles as it might appear in a first reading. I want you to hear that. He's answering him in Nicodemus's language and taking it further. That's what I want us to think about today. In each week when we say we don't want to just talk about Jesus, we want to posture ourselves to talk with Jesus and to be prepared to talk with Jesus through the week, the question might be, where might Jesus actually be able to speak expansive words to you if you were willing to enter in to that same posture of asking and listening, being willing to ask clarifying questions, where might you really actually need that expansive, take me where from where I am and expand me, Jesus. I have questions. I have things I don't get. You guys, that's so okay. Read the Psalms, read Job, read the uh, Lamentations. Let's just, I read the old Testament, read the new Testament. I don't know, talk to your friends. Like, questions are okay. My point is, like, they're everywhere. And Jesus doesn't shame that. And so in our world, in our place, where it can be really hard to feel like I don't have it together, I want you to think, like, how did Nicodemus approach Jesus? How did Jesus meet him where he was at and expand? And where might you really be honest with yourself to say, I could use a little challenge and expanding language in my life here, Jesus. Side note, I walked in this morning as the team was practicing the line. I walked into the sanctuary, but the light comes in so beautifully around that side. Like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. Like when you guys pick these words, when Steve and the team pick which songs to sing, we are formed by our worship. And so I want us to to respond in worship. But I want you to also feel the freedom to actually respond to the imagery that John leaves us with, the imagery of two people over cover of darkness, having this vulnerable and real conversation and being met by Jesus exactly where you're at with language that, yes, challenges, but knows so intimately that deepest thing that your heart is actually after. And however Nicodemus responded that day, we don't know, but we knew that there was something that Jesus touched that was what Nicodemus' heart was really after because he was there among dissenters to say, hold the phone, we gotta hear more from this guy. And he was there at the, at, uh, the, the, the cross saying, I will honor this person. I will honor him with a royal burial. And I believe he was there at Acts 2 when Peter spoke the words by, surrounded by thousands of people. And those words that he first heard whispered from Jesus about water and spirit together were now bringing true in a whole new way as I believe he probably was watching 3,000 people get baptized that day and being indwelled with the power of the spirit that still is carried through this line, this lineage of faith to us here today. Jesus, we love you. And I don't want to just read the words in red in this Bible. It happens to be read when you speak, but like, I love your words, but I love your posture. And I know that for me, I need to sit sometimes and imagine myself in a room with you rather than just reading about you. So thank you that you are here. We are gathered in your name and scripture says that when we are gathered in your name, you are here. And Holy Spirit, we honor that presence that we are here to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together in so much overflow of love for us that you would do anything to make a path towards relationship with us, whatever our state of darkness I think of the, the sunlight in the sunrise and how you're so ready and you feel like you've gone from pitch dark and it takes so long to get to light. The journey can be so long and God, you honor every second of that glorious sunrise sky in whatever iteration of dark to light and rainbow sherbet colors the sunrise is in any given moment. Like it's glorious whatever stage that journey is in. And God, you honor that. You affirm that. You love us so much that you sent your Son directly into that to give us the light that darkness cannot overcome. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name that we continue to sing and pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at misiodeschicago.com.